Welcome to Smart Casual, Image's first fashion podcast in collaboration with Kildare Village, dealing with personal style in a way that speaks to you. Hosted by me, fashion director Marie Kelly. And me, Nevo Dunhu, Image.ie's digital leader. And me, Image Publications digital editor, Dominique McMullen. In our 20s, 30s and 40s, we're three women across three decades with three very unique perspectives. And unique ways of approaching our personal style. While fashion is always thought of as being visual, we at Image think it's much more than that. Personal style is about how clothes make us feel, the impression they create in the world and how they express who we are. There's a lot to talk about when it comes to fashion. And we certainly love a chat. Welcome to Smart Casual. This week, our topic is diversity. Over the past few years, and especially this year, we've seen a surge in diversity and inclusivity within the fashion world, a space that once basically excluded anybody except for thin, white, straight women. We're going to be chatting with Irish model, academic and broadcaster Emma Dabry to get her view on diversity within fashion, as well as insights into her wardrobe and how that reflects her personality. But before that, what caught your eye this week? There has been a smorgasbord of fashion things happening, um, being Fashion Week at London and we're just after leaving um, New York Fashion Week as well. So there's been so much going on. I couldn't possibly pinpoint one thing, but I've been really enjoying just waking up every morning, checking my phone and seeing like what new designer is out or what was the big catwalk moment of the week. And what Um, was your favourite trend? I love mixing animal prints. Like I'm here for it. Like I'm all about taking the cow print with the snake or the leopard and the zebra and and having fun with it because it's not very often that you get a trend that you can actually just go a bit book wild with and this is it. So wear your leopard print trousers with your cow print top and throw on a big pair of sparkly (laughs) earrings and and cowboy boots and a western hat. Just do it all. (laughs) Rather you than me. (laughs) If anyone can, you can. And what about you, Dominique? Well, um, I have to say for me, actually, I just loved what Sinead Burke wore recently. I mean, we all we all know Sinead Burke is just a different level at the moment. She is the most stylish Irish woman out there representing. Um, but she recently was in a shoot for CR Fashion, which is Green Voigtveld's magazine. They did a feature on 21st century uh, women and she was wearing this embellished Christopher Kane skirt and a black cashmere Tom Ford jumper. And she just looked stunning. She had this really intense eyeliner. There was kind of a 60s vibe um, and I was just in love with it. I just can't get enough of her at the moment. Um, And also I have three kind of big weddings coming up in the next three months. Autumn weddings are the new thing. Um, And I've just realised how difficult it is to find nice dresses that are smart that are for autumn winter that aren't kind of summery dresses that are a little bit more kind of substantial and my day was saved by our lovely sponsor Kildare Village I was down in Diane von Furstenberg they're the only outlet in Ireland for Diane and the dresses are just stunning down there really stunning um so yeah, that's definitely my high. And what caught your eye this week, Maria? What was your fashion high? Well, my fashion high was working on the November cover shoot and fashion editorial for the November issue of Image. And every shoot that I work on is exciting and, you know, amazing. But yesterday's was just special. 
It was so beautiful. We booked an incredible Irish model who's half uh, Malaysian and she lives in London and we flew her in for the shoot and she was absolutely incredible and the whole theme was, I'm not going to give it away, but the whole feel of the shoot was so fantastical and dreamy and beautiful but really wearable and accessible too. Mm. Um, And it was just one of those days where you know, you have an incredible team and everything falls into place. Everyone's in good form. Everyone's loving what's happening. And the results were so exciting. And I think it's actually one of my favourite shoots since I've been at Image. And I'm so excited to see it on the pages in the November issue. And I'm so excited to see this beautiful Malaysian Irish model on the cover as well. When we sat down to think about the topic of diversity and how you'd approach it, the first realisation we all came to was that we are three middle-class, cisgendered white women of average height and weight and appearance. Is it jarring for us to be talking about diversity when we're not that diverse a panel? I must admit, when we considered talking about this topic, I did wonder what I could bring to the table. I've always been reflected in the media, in the fashion industry. But the more I thought about it and the more that I looked at the women around me, the women that I have relationships with, but the more I thought about the topic and the more I thought about the women in my life, the more I realised that actually I do have something to offer. And I think we all do. And I think we need to remember that any conversation about diversity that furthers this discussion is a positive thing regardless of who's having the conversation. Mm. I think it's so interesting once you scratch on the surface of the topic because it is such a buzzword at the moment. I think it's almost begun to not mean anything Um, but when we really did talk about it earlier when you really think about what diversity means for me, you know, it, it really is about individuals and how every single person is unique and right now it's great that diversity is being celebrated in fashion but really up until now, it has only been about a very specific type of woman. Mm. Um, And so even though we're doing a little bit now, it's still not enough, you know, that we need to continue and it needs to be something that is pushed and pushed and pushed. I was looking at some research there yesterday and fashion weeks, especially this fashion month, especially if you look at New York, there's been a big push towards diversity in different shows and Paramas and Chromat. Um, But actually there's only been an increase in inclusivity racially and for transgender models of about 2% year on year. But what there hasn't been any increase in in the last few years is in a diversity of age or a diversity of weight, Mm. which like really shocks me. You know, you feel like that's happening naturally, but it's not. Um, And certainly for me, I know that that lack of women of different weights really affected me when I was younger. Um, I loved fashion magazines. I used to just devour them when I was a teenager and in my 20s. And I know that started to really mentally negatively affect me so much that I, you know, was punishing my body um, and felt like anytime I went to a shop, none of the clothes were right for me. I didn't look like the women I saw in the magazines when I tried those clothes on, you know, trying to wear crop tops and short shorts and and whatever else. I remember so, so well that those slinky, um, backless, uh, kind of silk string tops that everyone wore. Oh my God, I had about 10 of them, yes, with the cargo pants. And no bra. (laughs) And I really wanted to be able to wear that. And the fact that I couldn't devastated me. But, you know, that, that was 
I wanted to wear those because I could see women in magazines wearing those and there there was no one in a magazine who was then especially like even a size 10 or 12 it was that whole era of heroin chic and Kate Moss and everybody was literally stick thin um, and that really did negatively affect me I think when we think of diversity we think of it as such a big overarching message but when you dig 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 down it, it is as simple and as small a thing as you know a 20-year-old girl who isn't seeing a size 10 or 12, you know, and that was my personal experience with the lack of diversity then. I don't know what you, Marie, feel about that. I can well, see you. it's really interesting hearing you talk about your body issues in your 20s because although, you know, I'm a size 8, I always really have been a size 8, I had um, huge body issues in my 20s too and I, I went down, you know, you know, quite a self-destructive road, I think, of um, of not eating properly and, and sort of wound up, you know, going to a clinic because I'd lost so much weight because thinner was better, thinner was better. But I, but I must admit, it wasn't the media that affected me or the fashion industry, interestingly. They were very much my own personal issues, you know, about control and, you know, what I thought made me happy and how I was trying to find out where my value was and I was good at being thin. So mm-hmm. I charged ahead and I and I was thin and women envied it in those days like you're saying I mean you did I guess you know mm. that's exactly what you're saying you you envied those women in the magazines you wanted to look like them so um, but interestingly as I was saying it wasn't the media or fashion um, or the fashion industry that affected me at all and I think that's partly because I've you know I started in this industry literally 20 years ago I moved to London in 1998 and while I was there, I was working for one of the big four publishing houses. And one of the first things that happened when I was with this publishing company was that myself and a few other new recruits were taken to the repro house where all the post-production happens. Um, there was a cover of a very well-known women's magazine on the table in front of us. And over it was a piece of tracing paper riddled with marks and directions and uh, indications of how the model on the cover should be, how her frame and her uh, face and her hands, how everything needed to be altered Mm. so that she was cover worthy. And it really struck a chord in me. I mean, you know, everything from her chin, her ears, her waist, under her arms, there was a direction to alter every part of her body. And, you know, she was a beautiful model. And Do you think that that translated into why you went down the self-destructive route at all? No, to be honest, it wasn't. I mean, that made an impact on me in terms of I just never, in my 20s, I never ever looked at the cover of a magazine and thought it was anything other than a doctored image. Mm. I never believed you had that covers. I thought they were beautiful, but I never believed them. I never looked and thought, oh, gosh, could I be like that? Or why am I like that? I never believed them. And how about your circle of friends? Did they ever look at magazines and be like, oh, I'd love to be like that? And knowing you had the the insider knowledge, did you ever tell them, well, look, girls, it actually isn't how no, I, I don't think I did. I mean, I think the crowd that I was hanging around with when I was in London, it was all about clothes. It was all about looking great. It was all about going out. And it was all about... Um, being the best that you could. And in that era, 20 years ago, looking the best that you could was being thin. Mm. And all of those women wanted to be thin. And I think I found my place within that group and found my value within that group by being the one who was really thin and the one that they looked towards, you know, with with envy. I looked at them with envy because they were more established in London than I was. So they had better jobs, more money. They had fabulous clothes. They were buying designer clothes. But that was my thing. I was I was thin and I was very good at it. And they envied that. And that's how I found my place, you know, 
within within that particular group. But I wonder, on reflection, I wonder, did the fact that I was working in fashion and in media, did it in some way subconsciously encourage mm. those instincts? It was a very female competitive environment. Mm. Um, and when you're in your 20s, you just want to fit in. Yeah. you know. I think it's interesting what you said, though, Neve. like, did you talk about the cover of magazines? I don't think people have these conversations. I think it's very much an internal conversation when you're seeing those images. It becomes the norm. We're so yeah. subjected to it all the time that we actually, we're, we're almost blinded by it and we don't talk about it. Like, did you ever think in your 20 years experience by holding up your hand and saying, hang on, why are we altering that woman? Why are we shaving away the undersides or why are we doing all of that? To be perfectly honest, at that age, I was I was 22. I just arrived in London. Magazines were everything that I wanted to work on. Yeah. And and no, I didn't. I thought this, this is just how it works. And it, it does show how far we've come because I never questioned it. I never, I never thought anything more about it, really. Mm. You know, um, and... The idea 20 years ago of having this conversation about the type of women who are represented in fashion and magazines, it wasn't happening in public and it wasn't happening in private among bunches of friends, the group that I was in. We weren't talking about anything other than what we were wearing the next Saturday night and who looked fabulous. Yeah, it's amazing how when you think about that, how fast you can move forward in a short period of time. How do you feel being somebody who wouldn't describe yourself as able-bodied? How do you feel? Do you see yourself represented in the media now? It's so interesting listening to both of your views because obviously I'm I'm from a time after you guys um, where I've had both the internet and magazines. So while I have similar experiences to you, Dominique, insofar as I bought magazines every week after Sunday Mass, um, <laughs> And I would idolize these beautiful women. And like that, I would have issues with my own body and would always aspire to be that tall, thin blonde that I was never going to be. Um, But equally, I have the world of the Internet and I became totally woke to what was going on. Um, Pretty young, I think. I think by the time I was 16 or 17, I I did realize that what I was seeing wasn't an actual representation of what a human body does, should look like, should feel like. Did I feel represented in the fashion industry or do I feel represented now? I I don't think so. Mm. Um, I think I've had a very unusual relationship with both my body and my wardrobe that we talked about in last week's episode. Um, I had a series of operations when I was younger and to see to see somebody, a woman or man with scars in a magazine or deformities would have made me feel so included and beautiful because I just genuinely did not feel beautiful until, probably until the last like, three years that I've really come into my skin and been like oh do you know what I actually don't mind showing my skin like I was so miserably self-conscious that when I went on a family holiday when I was 16 I was on the beach and just just because of the 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 natural shape of my body I have very small I'm very small chested I have a very small torso but I've really long legs <laughs> I'm kind of like a baby giraffe <laughs> <laughs> I never used to wear bikinis, uh, but I'm a very like outgoing person. Like I love being in the water and all that. So I was after my, having my back operation and I had a pretty nasty scar going from the, the base of my neck right down into my hips. And what really got to me was it wasn't the children laughing and pointing. It was their parents nice. sitting at the pool with my family. Really? Pointing at the kid who, you know, had a hump on her back and a big rosy red scar down her and pale as pale skin 
And that for me just made me feel so small and definitely like took away my my self-worth. And then when you're when you're home and you're looking at clothes in the clothes shop and you're thinking back to that time of I, I can't wear that if, if I know people are going to be able to see like my scar through a top or jeans aren't going to sit correctly on my body. Like how is that to make somebody like me feel? Or then you look at something that's not as as rare as my disease, like something like a limb missing or um, a paraplegic person. How are they to feel represented? And when you see something like some of the representation at Fashion Week now, like in New York, there was some not able-bodied people. Does that make you feel like, wow, how far we've come? Or do you think like, mm, we could be doing an awful lot more that kind of feels a bit, you know, buzzworthy, I, trendy? I think it's totally buzzworthy. And I think until we're at a stage where we don't need to say, oh my God, a model with Down syndrome went down the runway. Yeah. Until we reach that stage, that means we've, we're have on the way to diversity. But like mm. one model out of a couple of hundred or a thousand is is just not good enough. Mm. Um, and I think um, Rihanna's Fenty Savage show was just superb. It was it was a perfect display and example of what diversity should be. There was Caucasian models. There was beautiful um, olive-skinned models. There was um, Asian models. There was women of every size, shape, colour you could imagine. And there was two heavily pregnant women. So, I mean, that to me is diversity. Mm. And it's so interesting that you mentioned that campaign last night because I had a really, really fascinating conversation with my niece last night when I was telling her that we were going to be discussing this topic. So she's 22, she's in NCAD, she's gay, she's got a beautiful face, big, you know, blue eyes, long eyelashes, but she's got a really short kind of boyish haircut and her style would be, you know, very boyish. Um, And she said to me, but Marie, you know, I don't see any women in fashion that look like me. And it really, it really took me back that someone so close to me feels that way. Mm -hmm. And actually the one campaign she did point out as in some way reflects who she is was the Rihanna by Fenty campaign. And she showed me the images last night. I wouldn't be a massive fan of of what Rihanna does in terms of fashion, um, but it made me absolutely rethink what Rihanna does. Um, Fiona, my niece, she showed me these pictures and it was women with strength. I mean, it was women modelling you know, sexy, lingerie, lacy underwear. But there was power and strength to, to these women. I felt looking at these women, there was nothing sort of voyeuristic about it. You know, the way sometimes lingerie campaigns can feel uncomfortable Absolutely. to look at as a woman. Yeah. There was nothing like this about these about these women and about this campaign because all the power was with these women. Mm. And there was something very visceral um, about it all. And it, it it just, it struck me so strongly. And I just thought to myself, wow, you know, my niece cannot find a woman in the current fashion industry who looks like her to. or who represents her mm. or she, her, who she can relate to. And that's really got me thinking mm. hugely. I'm at a stage now where I'm so blessed that my mom is a seamstress because every single item of clothing that I have other than my underwear is altered. I have to alter the leg length. I have to alter the sleeves, the shoulders. I have to cater for the fact that like I have a hump on my back and my rib cage is twisted. Um, but the designers don't take that in, into consideration. And part of me is like, why should they? We're only a minority. There's only 2% of us in the entire population that have this. But... I am a consumer. I am. I am valuable, and I I place so much importance on my style and my appearance. So what I've actually started doing now is on the weekends I go and I buy material and I trace out my trousers and I'm starting to make my own. And it's 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 not 
it's not me taking a stand against going and buying things, but it's to show that there's not enough being done to support people who don't look like everybody else. Do you know what I love when you're talking about the strength in the Fenty show? I think fashion is this really interesting point where, you know, before I think it's been about like idealising and it's been about the unattainable and about not representing reality but representing what we want to be whether that's thin or whether that's young you know or whatever it is whereas now I think we're moving to a place where fashion is about representing real and about representing strength and the ideal being strong and powerful and empowered rather than the ideal being you know what it it has been. It was a fantasy. Fashion was a fantasy and I think it's not to say that there isn't still a place within fashion for beautiful fantastical narratives yeah of course of there is, course there is be. in the same way that we're not in any way saying here that um, there isn't a place for naturally beautifully thin white you know size 8 women in oh, the fashion of industry of course there is um, but you're exactly right it's, it's broadening out yeah. that vision yeah. so that fashion becomes a much more interesting space yeah. um, where there are lots of different women's narratives and or stories about, told. And it's about accepting that every individual is unique and respecting that every individual is unique and that we all are very different and that in itself is amazing and much more interesting. And should be celebrated. And should be celebrated. And I think I'm really proud of our um, the October cover of Image magazine, which is on shelves now. We have a beautiful, mature model on the cover, um, which you know I'm especially delighted with because obviously you pointed out earlier that that there really hasn't been much of a of a move towards um, featuring older models on the runway. Mm. So I'm really, really proud that we have her on the cover and all her beautiful laughter lines, frown lines, they're all there and they are beautiful. And there was no attempt or need or or desire Mm. to airbrush any of that out. And I think it's a really beautiful cover. And I think, you know, as someone, as a woman who's in her 40s, I need women to idolise, but who are older than me. And I need to look at women in their 50s and 60s who give me goals, you know, style goals, fashion goals, apart from anything else. Um, And I think we've moved from an industry and a world where, yes, if you were, you know, 20s or, you know, a teenager, you had so many visual references of what you should be or what you could aspire to be. But, you know, it stops when you get to your age. Exactly. But but now it isn't stopping, which is which is amazing. I'm very happy about that as as a woman in her 40s, that um, there are so many incredible women that I can look up to. And I think, you know, I want to be her when I'm in my 50s. I want to look like her when I'm in my 60s, when I grow up. Isn't it amazing that like Instagram has done that? And particularly for women that aren't as represented, like your niece, for instance, I have found so many amazing alternative, but not alternative models. They're not alternative. It's just they're not represented in the mainstream media. And they're so beautiful. They're these women that have alien-like features. The internet, despite all its, you know, I mean, it's very problematic in a lot of ways by social media, but it, it is certainly a great leveler and it certainly has made, you have much more access to yeah. people who who are like you and you can search out those people much more easily. And Dominique, we're really looking forward to your chat with Emma Dabbery, which is coming up next. You're listening to Smart Casual, Image's first fashion podcast in partnership with Kildare Village. So joining us now is Emma Dabbery. Emma, thank you for being here. You have an extensive CV of 
things that you've done in your life, which is just so impressive. You're, you've been a model, a historian, a broadcaster, an author, um, a really varied path. So tell us, how does one go from a life as a historian to being a BBC presenter or what you're currently doing presenting the Six O'Clock Show? Yeah, um, I guess it's been an interesting uh, career path and journey. Yeah, so I didn't necessarily like plan for things to work out the way they've worked out. Like life has a way of surprising you. Um, But I was doing a PhD, which I sadly still haven't finished because I've started doing all all of this other stuff. Although just gone into my final year and this time next year, I will be a doctor. (laughs) Dr. Dabry, watch this face. Um, So I was doing a PhD, um, but I always wanted to... I always wanted like research not to be just kind of reserved for like a small elite of people or to just kind of stay in um, kind of within an ivory ivory tower. I've Mm -hmm. always been really kind of committed to like social justice and change. And I wanted to kind of like get into academia, do research, but make it accessible and interesting to broader audiences than it usually serves. And I was thinking about different ways that you can do that. And obviously, like the media um, is a great way of disseminating information more broadly. So I started doing journalistic writing, which started like kind of going quite well. I started blogging, actually, and people started picking up on that. Then I started kind of writing for mainstream publications. From there, I started being asked onto a lot of TV as a contributor. Mm. And from there, I started kind of getting opportunities to kind of host and present stuff myself. So it's kind of developed in that way. Also, the BBC had, because I live over in the UK, and... Um, I do a lot of work for the BBC. They had a kind of open call for um, experts in different fields. And I went forward for one of that and I got on like this training course. And from there I got an agent and everything kind of moved on from okay. there. When yeah. you say it like that, it actually makes sense. Yeah, it actually makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. It's not like totally <laughs> doesn't mad. doesn't it's random. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what, what kind of subculture were you into when you were growing up? So I was... Um, I was a raver and when I was a teenager there was like such um kind of distinction between like kind of like rockers and ravers it sounds like it's from the 1950s <laughs> in the early 90s and there's the idea that you know if you were into guitar music like you were kind of like a smelly rocker yeah, yeah, a bit of a kind of hippie yeah 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 and just like oh no no time no time for that and then like the idea that oh yeah and then the ravers were kind of like very so for you very like different. glow sticks and and kind of like neon t-shirts like completely like fish and like in the early 90s, like when I was very young, um, but I would have, you know, like a fisherman's hat with like all like a marker written on like rave to the grave and like all these like smiley faces <laughs> and like baggy jeans and like whistles and dummies. And so even before that, what's your kind of youngest fashion memory when you were like really small? Is there yeah, one? Yeah, kind of- I have I have I have two very distinctive ones. Oh, um, so because my mum sold um, like secondhand clothes, I had access to lots of unusual bits and pieces that mm. um probably um yeah most most people wouldn't have and I was I was obsessed with like this is when I was very young now about six or seven eight eight probably when I had this particular outfit I was obsessed with like punk Madonna like the kind of like a virgin Madonna like I absolutely obsessed too. oh my god me yeah <laughs> and do you remember the film who's that girl yeah yeah okay so in that film Madonna has like a red tutu like black docks and like a black biker jacket. Yes. So I got like, I had like a little kid's biker jacket. And then um, my godmother had me, who was, my godmother was, um, was uh, one that actually worked in my mom's shop mm. and she was very, very cool. And um, she had me like a red tutu made. So I basically had like that outfit kind of uh, 
Yeah, mate. Like, I had that, had that outfit, but obviously it looked very different on me because I was like a chubby little mixed race eight-year-old with an afro. Like I didn't have <laughs> platinum blonde, <laughs> platinum blonde hair. And um, you were saying I must have been very cool. No, people didn't really look on it that kindly, to be honest. I think they were just like, like what, it, what the hell is that? Notions. Like, <laughs> notions. I didn't think they thought it was notions. They were just like, like what is, what is this? Just like, don't understand. <laughs> just didn't understand. Yeah, especially at six. Like. Yeah, no, this was eight. This was okay, eight, okay, I have to okay, say. Okay. Yeah. And then another one was, um, do you know, the Rocky Horror picture. I was yeah. always quite theatrical. Yeah, the Rocky Horror picture show. I found um, a photograph of myself, and this jogged the memory. And um, the girl who was my best friend at the time, Zoe, um, her ninth birthday party. So I would have been eight, and I'm dressed as I think her name's Tallulah, and she's like she's like the she's like the stripper in the Rocky Horror picture <laughs> show. So I've on like a leotard and fishnet tights and like a top hat. So you were always a performer, it sounds like. Like, you were made to go and perform. If you're dressing up in those... Like, I know for me, I always had... I had this dressing up box that my best friend, her aunt was in theatre, and she'd given her just this trunk of stuff, which was just incredible. And my mum only was reminding me last week, she's like, I think that's why now you're, like, comfortable performing. You've always been like that, you know, and now kind of going on TV. Do you think that that's kind of part of it? Do you think you were teaching yourself? yeah, it's, it's kind of a weird one because you know how you can be kind of like an extroverted introvert? Yeah. Yeah, so on one hand, I always liked to dress quite extravagantly. I mm. don't, not so much now, even though, as you can see, the, the split of my skirt is bordering on indecent. A beautiful leather skirt with a very racy cut up the side. Yeah, it doesn't lend itself so well to sitting down. It's, it's grand and I'm standing up, but sure, no, no one, it's not that no one can see it. So yeah, I'm kind of prudish. It's kind of, the slit is kind of high there. I always, yeah, in, enjoyed kind of dressing in quite a theatrical way, but then I was also quite shy. But then obviously with being mixed race and also dressing or people didn't even really identify me as mixed race they would see me as black um so that was already something that was gonna catch that was catching people's attention and then obviously if you're dressing like a punk young madonna that's also gonna add to it but then um but i didn't necessarily like enjoy i don't know if i really i didn't really enjoy attention though and i never did any kind of performance and there was always the idea people always thought I was a singer or thought I was a dancer so I think a part of me was just like no I'm never going to do that because like that's what everyone assumes I am why did people assume that I think because I was black so yeah so there was this part I had also had this kind of resistance to doing performance and then um but yeah I've, I've ended up kind of doing stuff well I've, yeah I've ended up being a broadcaster but I think I've definitely entered into that like through academia um, mm. even though it's now developed and I'm kind of doing like entertainment stuff as well. But that's, I guess, because when I actually started doing television, I was like, oh, like, yeah, I'm actually really enjoying this. So, so do you think now you use your clothes as like an armour or do you think you use your clothes as a way to express yourself or is it kind of a mixture of both? I mean, as a broadcaster, you definitely have to be really aware of the clothes that you're putting on. Um, but as an academic, that must kind of have changed the way you dress as well. So there's a lot of interesting kind of dichotomies there. Yeah, there really is. That's a really interesting question. Um, when I first started, um, I'm a teaching fellow at SOAS, which is the School of Oriental and African Studies, which is part of the University of London. And um, when I first started teaching there, I was like, I looked really young and I looked like one of the students. And I was just like, oh, like they're not going to take me like seriously mm. at all. So I was just like, hey, no makeup. I'll wear my glasses and I'll just wear like really frumpy clothes and then I'll look like more serious. Um, but it was quite difficult for me to like 
kind of negotiate that. And, and I really felt like, oh, you know, if I when I started kind of um doing more public speaking and stuff, I was still like kind of delivering papers and like being on panels and stuff. I was just like, oh, well, if I wear too much makeup, I won't be taken seriously either. And then as I started doing more of it, I just started kind of relaxing into it and realizing that like, I don't know, people make a lot of judgments about women that look young as well and about kind of like expectations about how intelligent they might be um assumptions rather about their level of intelligence and it kind of doesn't really matter whether you're wearing makeup or not and I was just like this is me like I'm quite like a glamorous person so I'm not going to diminish that part of myself Mm. in order to be taken more seriously and probably not even taken more seriously but to try and be taken more seriously in something that is just quite patriarchal anyway I'm just gonna be me so obviously then your kind of your career up to date influenced the way you dress being an academic being a broadcaster being a model has your kind of heritage influenced the way you dress at all do you think um yeah oh gosh I hadn't really considered that um I've had like lots of different styles that I've been into like over the years but I'd say one of the enduring threads that has kind of remained pretty constant throughout it all is I've always loved stuff whether or not it's in fashion or not, I love design from the 40s and 50s. So mm. there's often kind of like a retro feel underpinning lots of my clothes. But I can't even narrow myself. And today there isn't really, I can't even really narrow myself down to that. I'm quite an, quite an eclectic dresser as mm. well. And um, I I love style, but I'm not really swayed by fashion. Mm. Like what I'm wearing could be very out of step with fashion, but I might just like the style of it. In terms of, there's there's a lot of amazing um, African designers as well at the moment, like doing really interesting um, work with kind of like textiles and different patterns. And a really good friend of mine, Sandiso Kamalo, who's like a South African, South African designer, but based in London. She does um, a lot of, she's really strong on textiles and she has a lot of patterns from Southern Africa, from the Ndebele people of Zimbabwe Mm. and also Zulu designs. And they're very bold and strong graphics, Mm. but not necessarily in designs that people assume are African. It's quite a mix of different, quite a mix of different things. Her clothes are really nice and I wear quite a lot of her stuff. But yeah, I wear anything that really catches my eye and that I And that makes you feel good, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you take your wardrobe now, has it taken you a long time to build that wardrobe or? Oh, I can see you laughing. (laughs) I'm laughing so I don't cry. Um, (laughs) Yeah. So if you asked me that question a year ago, I would have said, yeah, I've been like, it's kind of my baby. It's one of my babies that I've been kind of um, collecting for over 15 years, if not longer. But sadly, I had um, a run in with them. mold in a house that I was living in and it wasn't just like a a little touch of mold on some of my clothes it basically like ravaged Mm. probably 80% of my clothes in a very short space of time I've really never seen anything like it like it was it was like something from a horror film how does that even happen I don't know so I tried to console myself with the fact that um the amount of clothes I'd kind of hoarded and collected over the years were it was too much and I often, they weren't, they also weren't very well organised. So mm. I often couldn't like find anything to wear because I was just kind of overwhelmed. Mm. So I definitely had to do 
there was a clear out that was long, long, long overdue. <laughs> but my hand was just kind of forced yeah. in that. And there's things like I had um, I had an Edwardian um, velvet, like full length cape wow. with a hood. Wow. That it was like very, it was just very witchy and gothic and it was like silk lined. It was stunning. Wow. My husband had found it for me somewhere and had it like uh, relined and stuff. And it was, it was just beautiful and irreplaceable. And that fell that fell foul oh, of the mould. I'm so sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I suppose, like you said, that kind of forced clean out. Yeah. What did you then go and decide to buy? Like, how do you even begin? You know, d- did you want to replace things? Or are you like, no, I'm just going to start afresh. I'm just going to, you know, follow what I'm into now. Or were there certain like staples where you're like, okay, I need to find a good pair of jeans, a leather jacket. Like, how do you even start? Yeah, no, it was it, it was it was difficult. And um, because so much of the stuff was um, like was irreplaceable, I knew those pieces. I would never find anything like them again. Mm. So I just had to kind of like... Let them go. Yeah, Mary Kondo it. <laughs> yeah. <Exactly>. Yeah. <laughs> I also hadn't really, up until that point, I'd never really uh, worn many high street clothes for various for various reasons. Yeah. I think because of my ageing, because my mum sold secondhand clothes, I'd always felt that like, and what I was saying about there being kind of like youth cultures and subcultures and stuff when I was growing up, it was difficult to, if you were wearing a certain look, you could back in the day you could tell that you'd really like gone to a lot of trouble mm. to 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 find those pieces yeah. whereas when you have some of the bigger shops that opened up i guess like in the last decade yeah. or b- before you're starting to see like certain looks that i would have considered kind of like underground looks before and you can buy the whole look just like off the peg yeah. and i'd always had like a real resistance to that understandably yeah but then i'd see people wearing gorgeous stuff and i'd be like oh where did you get that and they'd say somewhere and be like a high street shop and i'd be like oh god oh god I, it's like I, you I didn't like even it. try <laughs> but then my hand was kind of forced and i had to just like quickly like replace like a lot of a lot of stuff and i needed stuff to wear on tv and um i started going into like the the top shop um flag street store on um Oxford Street mm. in London has like a design section that actually has like re- like top shop design that's actually like really it's actually gorgeous mm. and I probably wouldn't have gone in there before and um, I got some like really kind of yeah nice pieces in there so my mum also has a shop in um in Dublin in uh, it's called Retro in Georgia Street ah. and um, yeah like she sells um, as I said she used to sell vintage clothes now it's mostly like reproduction vintage but she sells like lots of like beautiful like 40s and 50s like style dresses mm. so I got like loads of stuff from there and then I had bits and pieces like left as well so I was able to kind of like put together to assemble a decent enough wardrobe again and it's it's getting there yeah So you know a bit of obviously about the kind of current fashion industry then you're not just looking at kind of vintage pieces yeah um what do you think about right now there's a real moment happening in fashion for diversity it's mm-hmm. a real buzzword there have been like massive um massive strides taken and even when I'm walking around Dublin and I'm looking at kind of advertising and I'm seeing there are kind of racially diverse women mm. um as, as models and that's not something that I would have seen um, kind of before I left and went to England that would have been very unusual to see it, yeah it could just be you know that it's a trend now that it's kind of like 
people just know they're just kind of like kind of jumping on the bandwagon and maybe it is still sli- it's too early to say I think that it is entirely tokenistic like maybe there will be some more enduring change but it would be too early to kind of call that mm. and I do think in terms of just women generally like even when there is kind of like body positive models or there are um, women of colour who are models they're still not really like representative of, of ordinary women. Do you no. know what I mean? They're yeah. still an idealized um an idealized type of whatever yeah. of whatever they are. Yeah. Um so I don't know. I know there's definitely been times in the past, like working as a historian, and I've just finished writing um a book called Um Don't Touch My Hair. It's out next year, isn't it? Yeah, they'll be out in April. Looking forward to it. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> um and there's one section where I'm writing about the 1920s in Paris Mm. and Josephine Baker and I hadn't realised like how similar that period was to now in that yeah like blackness and black you know the way you'd have Beyonce and Rihanna now and they're kind of like the 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 pinnacle Yeah. yeah so that's how Josephine Baker was like it's kind of crazy to imagine that now but like yeah that kind of level internationally as well particularly in Europe and you know everyone's obsessed with tanning that starts with Josephine Baker in the 1920s in Paris a tanning craze started she was a very light-skinned but black African-American woman she was probably about my colour and white women wanted to look like her she was like the the idol and she brought out a tanning product to achieve her skin colour and then rich French women in the south of France started tanning and that took off around Europe and and kind of changed fashion. Fascinating. Even though blackness was like this trend and was really in vogue within 10 or 15 years, like it just wasn't again. And we know the rest of the 20th century like wasn't particularly like great in terms of diversity. It went backwards. Yeah, so it can... I always think that there's um, a tendency to believe that you have a certain level of kind of progress and it's just going to keep moving in that direction. But that doesn't happen. It kind of moves in one direction and then it can swing quite like violently the other way. Yeah. Um, Thank you so much for coming on Smart Casual. We have been delighted to have you um, and go and enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. It was lovely to be here. To coincide with each podcast, Neve and I set ourselves a style challenge. And this week's style challenge was based around sequence. So Neve styled the piece to suit a 20-odd-year-old and I styled the piece to suit a 40-odd-year-old. How did you find this challenge, Neve? Challenging. <laughs> I thought this would suit you down to the ground. Genuinely, no. Um, I definitely have two sides to my personality. There's like my my business functional side and my more... Um, street approach to my wardrobe and this fits in neither of those categories um but you know what I actually enjoyed it so putting it on first I definitely did not feel like me but after walking around the office looking like a spare for a little while it actually is something that I would wear to like a function or a wedding um and I teamed mine over um a midi dress which again is something that I wouldn't normally wear but I actually felt comfortable and quite confident in it 
I teamed that with a pair of silver heels, an old pair that I found in my wardrobe, and um, a very cute little kind of knitted crocheted uh, bag from Topshop that really like nicely blended in the, the silver tones. Um, I think you got a lovely mix of textures actually in that outfit, the sequins and the sort of knitted effect and the, the skirt or the dress rather had a sort of a slight pleat kind of Yeah, and that's why I it. went for it because I wouldn't normally just put on a top. I'm all about trying to maximise with accessories because the top was so embellished and definitely for somebody who is more of a maximalist as opposed to a minimalist, um, I decided to go for the, the heavier textures and I think it actually worked. I think you looked amazing in it, but I actually surprised myself with this challenge because when you suggested sequins, I thought, ooh, really not me. Um, But I loved this piece and I think the reason I loved it was firstly because it had a beautiful drape. You know, very often a lot of sequin pieces in the stores are very tight or very fitted or quite structured. I love sort of fluid, free-flowing pieces. So it sat really comfortably on me and it actually made me feel like me, which which I didn't think it would. And then I paired it with um, a really beautiful pair of wide leg pants with pockets so it had a kind of a little bit of a boyish feel and I always like to inject that slightly kind of masculine vibe into my outfits and I think especially with something so feminine and glamorous as sequins I had to give it a little bit of a boyish edge for it to feel like me but surprisingly I loved it. Head on to image.ie if you want to see how Neva and I both styled our sequin top. This episode of Smart Casual was brought to you in collaboration with Kildare Village. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, make sure to rate, review and subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes.